Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin podcast. This is a show about books about women, books written for women and about the women who write those books. My co-host is Astrid Edwards from the Garrett podcast. Today's theme for the podcast is triumph and we are looking in triumph in all its forms and most particularly how triumph in literature can look different for men and for women. I am absurdly excited that our guest today is the much awarded author Min Jin Lee. Uh, Min Jin Lee is a Korean American writer and frequently deals with Korean American topics in her work. She is the author of Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko. Pachinko, I think, may have been my favourite book of last year. I got to it just a little bit late. Minjin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here because I would rather be in Australia, frankly. <laughs> thank you for being awake very uh, late at night in uh, the States for us. Everybody else we've been chatting to has mostly been on the same time frame, so we, we recognise that it's a little bit rougher for you. No, no, that's really nice. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of a night owl, so it actually suits me. <laughs> so let's get started. When I mentioned the topic of triumph initially, you sort of almost looked at me a little bit confused and went, mm, it's not really the main theme of my writing. How? What are the themes that you think of and that are front of mind when you are creating a new work? Well, it's funny that you said that because I guess I don't think of triumph in an immediate sense, because I often feel like I'm so good at failure. And it's a feeling that I understand quite intimately. But I think what you're saying about triumph truly is a more evolved and more high-minded idea. Because I think you're not talking about winning. I think you're talking about how the human struggle can triumph over different difficult circumstances. So... I like the way you're looking at it. And I guess I think about that too, because as somebody who has, I have depression and I have anxiety and I often think, how will I just get through things and how will I persevere? And if I could be a decent human being today, that's triumph. <laughs> um, so I think in a way, and especially at this incredibly strange time that all of us are in around the world, I mean, little triumphs are really important. And I think that my characters in everything that I write about very often are trying very hard to be decent in a very difficult world. So you're absolutely right. But in terms of the other themes that I'm thinking about, I think a lot about shame. Well, I think a lot about desire. That's something that we're not supposed to have or how you handle obstacles. There's so many obstacles in life. Um, I also don't understand um, deceit. There's so much deceit in this world. And as I get older, it sounds so, sort of silly to say, but I'm disappointed because the world seems so interested in not telling the truth. And I think it makes people crazy. I think women often feel, I mean, the, the term that people use a lot on Twitter is gaslit, <laughs> you know, and I think that's happening a lot now. And I, really I'm puzzled because I don't know what it, what the benefit is of all this lying. I just see so much of it lately. 
the world is an incredibly difficult place to understand right now on so many different levels, the day-to-day level and, and that broader kind of existential uh, approach. It really interests me when, you know, you said shame and deceit. We asked you to talk about triumph, but, you know, there can't be a triumph. There can't be that ending, that learning, that understanding if there hasn't been something to go through or something to face or something to overcome, is that something that's inbuilt in your narratives or does that just come as the characters evolve on the page? Oh, it's funny that you mention it because I find life so difficult. Like I find life really difficult. And at home, when I was growing up, I was called... So I have two sisters and my, my sisters are considered um, the hares to my tortoise <laughs> because they're really bright and they're very quick and they get things in a super fast way. They assimilate information quickly. And I've always been kind of scratching my head and a bit of a dope in the house. So in a way, I find trying to learn new things and trying to get on uh, hard. And yet I also have a real serious attachment to doing what I said I was going to do. So if I didn't care, then my life would probably be easier. But because I really care about doing the right thing, and at the same time, I do feel a bit handicapped compared to some people that I've met in my life, especially my own family, that these obstacles are just inherent in my life, it seems. <laughs> but I'm not the only one. I, I think that all of us are having a hard time. And the older I get, the more I realize that all of us are just kind of hanging onto the planet by our fingernails. Well, even for me, I, I think one of the things that really stayed with me reading Pachinko, I was really unwell while I was reading it. And I enjoyed... I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. I bet I enjoyed the metaphor of this idea of... I think I'm someone who always looks for control in life and yet here you were writing about these characters but also this game where this little ball just kind of has no control over its own destiny. It's just smashed around by other people's sort of flipping the little flippery things and and the outcome is unknown and we don't have that much control over what route we send that little ball down and that's how I started to think about the wonderful heroes and heroines in your book, they were sort of fighting this uh, battle for acceptance in their society and at the same time this internal battle for who they were and what triumph looks like in that situation for me is just survival, right? It's just getting through is in itself a triumph. And yet when I reflect back after finishing Pachinko, if I use that definition, the women were the ones that tended to triumph and the men were not. Did did you have a sense that women and men approach survival under very difficult circumstances with different perspectives? I know I'm asking you to generalize. (laughs) Well, no, I'm happy to generalize because I do think that in a way, I think women handle humiliation better. I think women are humiliated more consistently. And I think poor women must accept humiliation because they're often at the bottom of the the wrong of society. So men are often told that in order to be men, and I think that men don't feel good about it. You know, I I think men don't want to be humiliated. 
And they're often made to feel less than if they accept terms that they're not supposed to as men. And these gendered roles, I think, oppress everybody. However, I think women, especially poor women, because they handle humiliation more regularly and the inequities more regularly, they end up having to sort of stick with things. I also think that because of your uterus, women have to put up with nonsense. Like if they do take care of their children, and it's not like you can have a child outside of your uterus. And I think that once you carry a child, your requirements to this person, unfortunately, are far less fair. You have a bigger burden than a person who doesn't have a uterus. So I think in that sense, I found um, the way women suffer, the way women have to handle humiliation is... It's really troubling, and yet at the same time, really, I really admired it. I really admire what women have to go through and how much they endure. Like, I mean, if you think about even just like menstruation, like when you begin at the certain, certain, at a certain age and you have to endure that incredibly bizarre thing that happens to your body <laughs> and um, all that development. And I think our biologies often make us handle things and life in a different way. And I think women are quite tough. Um, and I think if you don't handle humiliation, life will be hard for you. And I think when men are told they can't be humiliated and they have to fight or they have to flee, then it's not a good survival instinct because you can't always fight everything. I like it when you say that women are tough. I agree with you completely. When I first picked up Pachinko, it, you know, it's 500 plus pages. And it struck me first as a family narrative, an intergenerational narrative amongst many other things. And as I go through and I read, as Jamila pointed out, you know, the male and female stories are a little bit different. The women tend to survive in a different way and a better way, if I can put it that way. One of the oldest story structures we have is the hero's narrative. And I know I've just said hero because that's what it's always called. But when you're writing and you're exploring the world and you're teaching your reader many things that they may not have known, are you aware that you are bringing something new to that hero's journey? You are bringing the women and you are bringing the poor women and you're bringing the stories that have always been left out of the traditional hero's narrative. Well, I think it's Jamila's earlier point about triumph. I think that it's a really smart way to look at triumph in the same way if you look about what it means to be a hero. We have conventional ideas, somebody slaying a dragon or saving a civilization or conquering a, another villain in order to capture the princess. <laughs> you know, you have these ideas of what a romance is, capital R. And I guess for me, the more I look at the world, the more I realize, well, who are the people who are so important? and who are really making the world run. And very often they're unrecognized individuals and very often poor women. And I wanted to figure out, well, how do I get their stories in there? And I didn't think anyone would really care, frankly. <laughs> if I wrote about somebody who wasn't beautiful, who wasn't really skinny, who, was, um, who wasn't the princess, who wouldn't be saved, I, I thought, well, will, will anybody care? And I decided that I would care, and that was enough. I'm really surprised that it's had an audience, frankly, and I'm very grateful whenever I meet a reader. I'm like, you actually read all that? Wow. <laughs> Good on you, mate. <laughs> 
you do you do write a long book. I will grant you that. But I've got to say, both of your works, I got to the end and kind of wished I got more. Not because it wasn't a good ending, just I, I would have liked for it to keep going. I know that for your writing, you've interviewed a whole lot of Korean Japanese people and talked to them about their experiences. And often people older than you who lived through the kind of periods that you're writing about going back, um, you know, dozens and dozens of years. I, I read in one piece um, where you were interviewed that you said you were surprised by their resilience and their optimism. Can you tell me a little bit about that that optimism and the idea of remaining optimistic even when, like, life's been pretty rubbish to you sometimes? Yeah, you know, that's the thing that always humbled me because I would read about something. Like, I would read the sociologist's point of view of how a certain group was treated. I would treat, kind of approach in a very academic way. So I would read all the history and the academic and the sociology and the anthropology and the economics and the law of a group. And then I would meet the people and they would look at me like, what is your problem? <laughs> like, why do you feel sorry for me? I feel sorry for you, modern woman, <laughs> you know, like with your dumb problems. And I would say things, the things that concerned me, the things that depressed me, the things that caused me anxiety. And they would think that I was, you know, feeling rubbish. Their attitude about poverty or housing and food and education for their kids, healthcare, all the things like how to make a living, how to deal with an abusive um, partner, like all those things would come about. And then I would feel like, huh, how are you optimistic? And then I realized that they had a really strong sense of purpose. Whereas I think modern people are often wondering the purpose of their lives. Like, why do I do the things that I do? I'm not quite sure sometimes. Whereas their attitude is, oh, I know what I'm doing. I am taking care of my family. I'm taking care of my parents. I'm taking care of my friends. I'm taking, I'm trying to pay the rent. I'm trying to keep the landlord off my back. And they had this really strong clarity. And then their attitude was, hey, I made it today. I came out with a little net positive. And that was enough. Whereas I was thinking, well, gosh, is what I'm doing important enough? <laughs> Maybe not. And then I would get all down about it. And then I felt like such a fool. The idea of purpose feels very close and very far away for me at the moment given everything that is happening. Yeah. My world, like everybody's world has shrunk right down. But one of my joys every single day is to go into fiction written by somebody else. And I can only say thank you because it is making oh. my world a little bit better right now. Oh, I'm so glad. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of purpose because all of us are experiencing chaos. I mean, our lives have been really upended as we know it, and it feels like chaos. And I do think that those of us who care about narrative, we're trying to take that chaos and make it cosmos. We are trying to make a unified theory. We're trying to have a unified idea because we feel so out of control. And ideally, we want to make an argument and say, this is why this is happening to us. And it's very hard to see when you're in that moment. But for me, that makes me feel like, okay, it's okay to get a headache making yourself sick thinking about why <laughs> we're going through this. If I can create drama and the drama and how it continues and visually it becomes a story in which we figure out how to find a stronger way to struggle. 
not necessarily a happy ending, but how do we struggle better? And I think that gives me a little bit of hope. You spoke earlier about anxiety and depression, which are themes Astrid and I have explored in the podcast, but also just with each other uh, quite often. And and one of the things that I've always... All the best people have it. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. Um, One of the things I always find when I'm deeply anxious is that small goals and small triumphs and small achievements is what I have to focus on, whether that's getting up, having a shower, going for a walk, aren't I a hero? And at the moment, it feels a little bit like that, confined to our homes and uh, suddenly having to do very simple things and focus on very simple things. It does feel unusual when I get to the end of the day and I talk to my mum and my achievement of the day is that my son and I sat down and made a caterpillar out of an egg carton and that was my achievement for the day. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, it also strikes me as a very... um, traditionally a very feminine achievement, right? I think for me that comes back to this idea of triumph that we've always conceptualised men's triumph as triumph on the battlefield or slaying the dragon, as you say, but women as triumphant, I suppose the woman's triumph of the past was getting the guy, right, marrying well, whereas one of the things I love so much about your work is that women's triumph is quiet um, and sometimes small, but the triumph is keeping themselves and their families alive, often when men are kind of falling apart because they're mixed up in their own ideas of brilliance or honour or whatever it might be, the women are kind of like, yeah, but we got to eat today, so I'm going to focus on that. Well, and also you are making a memory with your child and 10 years from now you'll be thinking that that was the smartest thing that you did in the pandemic, truly, When I think about, my son is 22 years old now, and I don't regret for a minute all the times we played trains. Like when I think about what really, what I did well in my life, it's that I think I made him feel loved. I mean, so much of this world is so fucked up because people don't feel loved. (laughs) So I think, oh, if I could make you feel loved, that was a good day. That was a really good day. (laughs) I think also, uh, and I want to close off with this point, is that writing a book in itself is a triumph. (laughs) Getting words on the page, being a woman of colour who is not only published but lauded all over the world and has Australians calling her on a Saturday morning to talk about how amazing her work is, is a triumph. How does that reconcile with you? It feels, my sense is you're almost a little bit uncomfortable with the attention and the and the praise? How does the triumph sit with you? I don't feel very triumphant. I feel really grateful. And I don't mean that in like a little way. I'm really surprised when people spend 12 to 14 hours reading my books. because, And I talk about this sometimes because I'm a bit of a socialist where I say if I sell a copy of my book, I make about a dollar, like a US dollar. So clearly I didn't do it for the money. <laughs> And the idea of getting praise or glory, it's such a tiny little world. Like the most popular writer in the world is really not a celebrity, if you think about it. And so in my tiny little universe, I did something which I think was valuable. So that was good. It wasn't a waste of my time. But, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't talk very well. And I didn't really talk until almost middle school and I had a lot of speech problems and a lot of social issues. And, but I 
when I read, it's kind of like what Astrid was saying earlier. When I read fiction, I felt like none of my ugliness, my social ugliness mattered at all because I was in that world and that author saw me and I was allowed to be at the most important party without even having to say anything or wear the right clothes. <laughs> and then you just feel like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for making that book. I mean, if you just think about how much Jane Eyre meant to me as a girl, I mean, for every girl who likes books, how much that book means to us. <laughs> and I think to be part of that world, it's really quite a very special thing. So for me, I guess, if I could be on your shelf, that's a really cool thing for me. But everything else, I, I, you know, it can go away tomorrow. I mean, you know, you don't know how long things last. <laughs> so you just, I think when someone gives me their time, I can't think of anything more precious than that. Well, we are so grateful for you giving us your time this morning for us and this evening for you. It was an absolute thrill to be able to meet you via a Zoom call and to share your triumphs and the triumphs of your characters with our listeners. Thank you so much, Minjin. Thank you, Astra. Thank you, Jamila. You guys are awesome. Astrid, next up is a woman who needs no introduction, and that is Hillary Clinton. And no, sadly, she is not a guest on the podcast. But our next book is Rodham, a novel. What if Hillary hadn't married Bill? So this is a fictionalized account of what Hillary Clinton's life might have been if she was never Hillary Clinton. It's written by Curtis Sittenfeld, and it is making quite a buzz already what do you think of this kind of fiction that takes real people's lives and makes up an alternative pathway for them? I have so many thoughts about this book. In some ways, when I read it, it felt like it was this guilty pleasure that I loved and felt icky about the entire way through. So to answer your question specifically, I enjoy historical fiction and I really love the kind of sub-genre of the historical what-if. One of the most famous examples I can think of is Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, which imagines that the Allies lost World War II and Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan conquered the United States of America. And so that's a, you know, a big what-if, but everybody in that is dead or you know, it's generations in the past. When it's done with real people who are alive and still married, it has a bit of an ick factor. Yes, I completely agree. I And I, I need to say before I explore that ick factor that I really enjoyed. Me too. I really enjoyed reading it. But I don't know, I thought about it like in a biography, right? When someone else writes the biography of your life, they are extrapolating from the facts, right? So there's, a, there's an element of playing with the truth and playing with reality because it's always going to be someone's interpretation. So that does turn real people in a to an extent, into kind of caricatures. But here we are turning people into characters and not only only individuals who lived into characters but individuals who are living. And to me that feels like really bold. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are two of the most powerful people on the planet individually and together. So when I say ick factor, I don't mean that they can't speak for themselves or they can't make their opinions of this book known they can, right? So I don't feel sorry for them in any way. I guess what's strange is that this is a fictionalized account of their relationship in the early years and essentially, and we know this from the cover, 
why Hillary didn't end up marrying Bill. So that means, of course, that she is Hillary Rodham uh, and he remains Bill Clinton. And this book is quite favorable to her. I mean, she it, it, everything is told from her point of view and it's fascinating, right? Like Hillary comes out of this very well. Bill really doesn't. This is the Bill Clinton of the 90s, the Bill Clinton who got impeached for lying to Congress, the, the, the slick willy of the 90s, which was his nickname. This is that on steroids in the 21st century. So he doesn't come out of it very well. I don't think it really matters because so many terrible things have been said about Bill Clinton. He has done so many questionable and terrible things that this is not going to hurt him. But, you know, when you're reading about their sex scenes, I didn't know whether to cringe or cry or bluff. There was just like a lot of detail for for sex scenes between two people who were still alive. One of the things I kept coming back to was that it is essentially a sliding doors book. Sorry to reference terrible Gwyneth Paltrow movie. It did make me think about the sliding doors moments in my own life. And I think for women, those sliding doors moments are often marriage. The fact that for so many women, especially throughout history, their actual name, you know, who they are, or at least who they're labeled to be, changed when they got married. I found that really interesting. And as I was reading the book, I found myself recalling past relationships and decisions at university and work decisions and those moments where you go back and go, if I'd done something slightly differently, I would not only have lived a different life, but I would be a different person. So here's my question to you, Astrid. If Hillary Rodham in this book has become a different person, essentially, to Hillary Clinton because she's lived a different life. Is she more, and I'm using quotation marks here, is she more likable? That is an excellent question. So as I mentioned before, this whole book is written from Hillary's point of view. And fictional Hillary actually asks herself that kind of question over and over. Like, why don't people like me? I'm trying really hard. And fictional Hillary and real life Hillary actually have really close long-term friends who have been with them for decades. So clearly Hillary in her personal life, the real one and and this fictional one we're talking about, have real meaningful friendships and are likable. But, you know, when you're this mega famous person that probably, you know, most of the planet can recognize, she's not that likable. And I find that offensive because I think it's a gendered reason that she's not likable and she doesn't... Oh, it absolutely is. You know, doesn't perform to all the ways that women are supposed to perform. But... Fictional Hillary questions that. And it actually made me think back to our second episode where we interviewed Keridan Dovey. And you, Keridan, and I had that discussion on intellectual lust. And fictional Hillary spends a lot of time understanding that she's the smartest person in the room. And because of that, males and females respect her, want to work with her, a whole bunch of positive things, but they don't necessarily like her. And she is lonely, or fictional Hillary is lonely, because that is a lonely place to be. And I think that while that doesn't answer for me why real Hillary has faced such vile abuse because of her gender and because she didn't win the election and because she dared to even run in the election, I think the fact that she's actually really smart turns a lot of people off. And wants to be powerful right? We allow men to be powerful and liked. They get to be both. Women have to choose one or the other. You're either the well-behaved, likable girl around the office, and I use the word girl and I hate that, but that's who I'm thinking of, right? Who doesn't progress too far up the tree, who doesn't ever seek out the promotion, but likes a pat on the head occasionally because that is what we expect women to be. So we like those women 
And yet, and I'm using like clearly as, and we as society, not me. I like you all, but particularly the Hillary Clinton type women, the women who push, the women who are ambitious, the women who want to be the boss because they think they can get good things done with that power. I think as a society, we still find that really uncomfortable. I mean, here in Australia, hell, look at Julia Gillard, right? Can we just take a moment to appreciate that with everything that's happened in 2020, the countries that are led by female leaders tend to be doing a bit better. So let's just leave that there, that lovely fact. No commentary, just a, just a fact. Just a fact. Back to Julia Gillard. <laughs> I think that there is a shout out to Julia Gillard in this book. Did you notice it? No. Should I have? Maybe it's me being an Australian really kind of reading into this and, and wanting to see a shout out to the real Julia Gillard. Now, we know that in real life, Hillary Clinton and Julia Gillard have spoken, have appeared on panels, have actually discussed Julia Gillard's misogyny speech that she delivered to Tony Abbott uh, in Parliament. Brilliant speech. If you haven't Googled it on YouTube lately, I really do recommend you do that. But Julia Gillard, before that speech and the weeks before, those terrible weeks, there were protests around the country that included banners not only saying you know ditch the witch but jewel liar as in julia and liar put together jewel liar and yeah. hillary yeah. fictional hillary experiences the same thing there are placards at rallies oh you're right and it's hill liar instead of hillary now i'm not going to ruin whose rallies they appear at it's worth reading the books to contemplate that entire situation but I felt that that was a call out to the Australian audience and to the comments that real Hillary has made about that brilliant damn speech from Julia Gillard. Astrid I want to thank you for bringing this actually brand new book um, to the podcast especially in this episode about triumph because one of the things that I love so much about this fictionalized version of history is that Hillary is triumphant, right? She gets to be triumphant and she is the kind of character and I think the kind of individual, whether you like her politics or not, right? Set that aside, the politics and what she wants to do. It's okay if you disagree with that. But her integrity as an intellectual, the fact that she is a thinker and fiercely intelligent, you want someone with that kind of smarts to be the leader of the free world, right? And we haven't had a Barack Obama aside. We haven't had the best record on that of late. Absolutely. I think my main reflection on reading this book was that in this world, in the real world, a woman like this very rarely would get to be in charge. And I quite enjoyed the triumph of living in her fictional world for a little while. Oh my God, if only this fictional world was the real world we were in in 2020. My turn, Astrid, and I am hoping that you're going to like what I bring to the table as much as I liked what you did this episode. For our nonfiction read, I have chosen Rising Strong by US academic and writer Brene Brown. I'm a little bit nervous that maybe this wasn't your cup of tea. What did you think? Jamila, this was not my cup of tea. This book... I had to struggle to not violently rip it apart and throw it away from me. I really found it not offensive because I don't think it's good enough to offend me, but I really found it vacuous and low-grade Americana. <laughs> vacuous and not good enough to offend me. <laughs> it's true. Okay, look, it's it feels like I am searching for words here and the only words I can find is it feels like drive-through therapy. You know, you go to America and you can get drive-through pharmacy and drive-through banking and drive-through coffee and this feels like drive-through therapy and I just think the world needs better. 
All right, you've made some fair points. I'm going to try and explain at least why I've brought it today, even if I can't convince you that it's any good. So bear with me. When you say drive-through therapy, I think that's actually a really fair reflection on this book because it is it is really self-help. It is uh, well-researched and factually based uh, self-help, but it is, it is essentially a self-help book. And I think reading a self-help book is reading non-tailored therapy, right? The kind of therapy you just drop into rather than building out of an ongoing relationship and achieving something more meaningful in terms of change and understanding in your own life. But let me tell you about Brene Brown. She used to be this kind of obscure academic. No one had really known who she was. She was a professor of social work in Houston. And then she absolutely blew up globally. She's now one of the best known self-helpy authors anywhere. And I should probably note that she doesn't like the term self-help author, but that's what she is. So she's going to have to live with it if she's listening to the podcast. I suspect I am not going to be the one that offends her if she is listening. Some people call her the thinking woman's Oprah. And look, she does write in a way that my mum would describe as very American. I am with your mother on this one. You and my mum always agree on books. I feel ganged up on. Brene Brown writes about confidence and vulnerability and resilience. They're kind of like the core values that she explores. And this book, Rising Strong, is her third work. There was Gifts of Imperfection in 2010 and Daring Greatly in 2013. And 2013's Daring Greatly was the one I came across first. And it really helped me speak to some of the younger women on my team at the time. And I was working in women's media and I had a big team, mostly of 20-somethings. It really helped me talk to them in a way that was effective about taking risks and not letting go of fear of judgment, but of accepting that judgment was going to come regardless. And I just found it really useful. But are you referring to Daring Greatly and not this one, Rising Strong? Probably. I think I've probably merged them a bit in my mind, which probably says something about the content, right? It's a bit same, same. Maybe it is a bit same, same. So this is an episode about triumph. And I actually really want to go back to your point about Brene Brown was an obscure academic who's made it. I really respect academics and I respect female academics and if there is an academic out there who makes a huge amount of money off their research, then I think that is a brilliant story and I want to see more of it. So hats off in that respect. That is a just damn brilliant. I guess I struggled with the content of her latest book, knowing that I haven't read any of her previous work. <laughs> Normally I do my research, but this time I just could not bring myself to do it. The thing that disturbed me and made me quite angry was... The idea that if you're vulnerable and if you kind of do a little bit of surface work on your own psyche, you can fix yourself. And I think that that maybe works if you've, you know, had a bad day or something, but it doesn't work if you are really feeling something that has been imposed outside of you. So if you, society is a terrible place. And if you are feeling homophobia or racism or you have experienced violence because of your sexual identity or your gender, I mean, these are things that society and other people put on you. And it's not about you just fixing yourself and feeling a bit more vulnerable. Like, I feel like this book wouldn't work for anybody who was seriously feeling lost or alone or concerned about their mental health. And just being told that you can fix it is a dangerous message. Hmm. All right, let me unpack that a little bit because I think I agree. 
I'm worried by the end of this episode, I won't like the book anymore. I think there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. The first one is the idea that it's almost a bit victim blamey is where I think you're kind of going with, with your criticism. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. So firstly, I think if you are someone who has experienced horrendous and real discrimination in your life to the point that your mental health has been affected, this is not where you start. You go and see a psychologist and you see someone who is trained to help you in your personal circumstances. However, I do think if you are a person who has experienced sexual assault or abandonment in childhood or various examples of belittling that happen in our lives that make you feel small and not powerful, there is work that you can do to make yourself feel more powerful again and to reclaim your own story and your narrative. Not to excuse what was done to you, which is awful, but to help bring you to a place where you can push back against the framing of you as just a victim. Because I think that victim framing, a lot of people find really difficult. Um, It's the reason we say survivors of sexual assault rather than victims. There's a reason for that because we're giving agency and power back to the person who the wrong was done against. I suppose I didn't see it as a victim blaming book. To me, I found that it it was a bit more kind of rah-rah, less feminist and more sparkly purple sign dream catcher than the way I would have described it. But I think a lot of women because of gendered social structures are made to feel disempowered and are made to feel like their vulnerability is a weakness as opposed to it being a superpower of empathy and understanding and connection and that accepting and recognizing the wrongs that have been done to us can lead us to a really powerful place, not accepting them as okay, but accepting that they happened, that they were not our fault and that we have power and agency in the situation going forward, that we frame our own stories. I'm I'm really worried I'm tying myself up in knots, but this book isn't for you, right? This book probably isn't for me either. I think it's for someone who isn't ready to admit they need to see a psychologist yet. I think it's, I think it's a gateway drug to real help. Okay, Jam, I can't tell if you are selling this book or you, or you are dissing this book and this is an episode on Triumph and I just don't know. Both. <laughs> I worry sometimes there are segments in our society and I am very much part of those segments a lot of the time that look down on the mainstream and we look down on it because we don't think it's smart enough for us because we consider ourselves more intellectual and above that. And I think someone like Brene Brown, who is well-educated, who is a scientist, who is a researcher, who is finding a way to express complex concepts really simply, I think that's a good thing. And I think that's a really worthy thing to do. I think just talking to the kind of Twitterati academia all the time isn't always the best use of our intelligence and influence. So I, I think I admire what she's done, even if perhaps the book isn't necessarily my cup of tea either. Astrid, I have been hanging out for this part of today's podcast. The theme is triumph and I want you to hit me with two joy-filled, pump me up, make me feel amazing, triumphant books. One fiction and one non-fiction, please. I have a fiction and a non-fiction for you today, Jamila. I don't know if they are joyous and will lift you up, but they are certainly 
they do speak to me about triumph. The first is by Shakufa Azar. It's a fiction work, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree. Now, before I tell you about the novel, I want to tell you about Shakufa. So Shakufa was an Iranian journalist. Uh, she was arrested several times in Iran and eventually ended up uh, for a period in solitary confinement. As a result uh, of her journalism in Iran, she fled and she came to Australia via boat from Indonesia. She was interred on Christmas Island and then in a detention centre in Western Australia and eventually given uh, asylum and citizenship in Australia. She wrote The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree in her first language, Farsi, and a friend who is anonymous translated it into English. The translation was shortlisted for the Stella Prize two years ago and after that great success is now, in 2020, shortlisted for the International Booker, which is one of the highest literary prizes on the international scene. So not only is The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree a literary success, Shakufa's work is currently being sold in Iran on the black market. Oh, wow. It's illegal to sell this work in Iran. Uh, she is considered a dissident who fled. But it is literally being published and spread underground because it's beautiful. The novel speaks to themes of family and coming home but it's also a commentary on human rights and what it means to be a human in this world a big question i think for for everybody making it making their way through 2020 so this was the first work i thought of when considering triumph not just because you can sit down and, and enjoy this world that shakuva is painting but this is a work that is doing what few works do it's being passed around hand to hand underground because it speaks to what can be the beauty of being human. I love that as both a book that is a triumph in terms of its content, but a book that is a triumph in terms of the way it has been written and the way it's been translated and the bravery with which it's being distributed to its readers. Because reading can be an act of triumph right it can also be an act of rebellion in certain circumstances and um, I'm so glad you brought that one to us today and I can't wait to get my hands on it now another one no friend but the mountains by Beirut Bashani Beirut is also from Iran also uh, left and came to Australia by boat no friend but the mountains is his insight about and writings from Minus Prison. I thought this was going to be an autobiography. And of course, this is very much based on his personal experience of being interred in a camp. But this is so much more than an autobiography. This is not political commentary in terms of day-to-day -day politics. It's got nothing to do with that. But this is like an academic treaty on power and what it means in a prison hierarchy you know the rules the australian government gives which get passed down through the departments to the prison guards which then get passed down to the different prisoners and all the different human hierarchies that that change the power balance and he actually invents a word for that and is making a contribution to academic literature whilst peeing one of the most beautifully written indictments of australia's immigration policy that I have ever read. I've used the word academic a few times, but this is not an academic text. There is poetry in here. There is innovative and beautiful prose. I don't even know what category to put No Friend But The Mountains in, but this is a work that defies categorization. I just think that this is a contribution to world literature in a way that we all need. 
it actually reminds me of other prison texts. For example, Nelson Mandela's autobiography, which of course was smuggled out of Robben Island on toilet paper and scraps of paper. Uh, no Friend But the Mountains was written, you know, via WhatsApp and text message in really short bursts. Having, you know, written a book that is just not on the same <laughs> stratosphere as this one, um, which I have read and absolutely loved, I cannot imagine just at a practical level how you write a book by WhatsApp and how you write with such elegant prose and be so beautifully expressed when you don't have the power of editing and revision and all those tools that we have in simple things like Microsoft Word, which I think the very fact that he was able to smuggle, essentially smuggle, that was what he was doing, smuggle his thoughts, his writing, his prose out to his publisher is extraordinary. And I think credit should also be paid to the publishers because it was a brave thing to take on this book. It has rightly triumphed in the way it should. It's won a huge number of local literary awards. And I truly hope, although I suspect it's false hope, that anyone who reads this kind of book will get louder in terms of their advocacy for getting people out of long-term mandatory detention in Australia because it's been a shame of this country for so long and inch by inch we make legislative progress and we fall back again. We have court appeals and then they are overridden and this book is such a painful exploration of what happens to someone in order for them to take that risky journey to Australia without authorisation in the first place and the circumstances under which you do it. You don't do it unless you absolutely have to. Those are two beautiful recommendations, Astrid, and I want to thank you for them, but also for your recommendations throughout the first season of Anonymous Was a Woman because you have been extraordinary in bringing some great reads to the table and you have kept me ridiculously busy. (laughs) And my bedside table is now a pile of enormous shame things I need to keep reading. One I am very much hoping you haven't read is my recommendation today, which is a children's picture book, Where All Wonders by R.J. Palacio. I haven't read it. Yes. (laughs) It feels like a triumph when Astrid hasn't read one of my recommendations. This is based on a short novel for older children and adults, but it is a kid's picture book. And my son and I have a bit of a routine at night. We always do three books and sometimes his dad, sometimes me. And he picks two and we pick one. And he has a tendency, like most small children, to pick the same books again and again and again because he likes the routine. And so we usually try to bring something new and mix it up. This is the exception. I absolutely adore Where All Wonders because it is both simple and beautiful in its message. It's about a little boy called Augie. And Augie is represented in very simple pictures as only having one eye and sort of part of his face is obscured. But the pictures are so simple, it, it's not really clear, but you get the sense that Augie has some kind of facial disability. Augie talks about the loneliness in his life and how other kids point at him and laugh at him. And then Augie travels to Pluto, as you do, with his dog. And on Pluto, they meet all of these people who look like Augie. And in that moment, he has this realisation that if we could all see individuals for who they are on the inside, not how they look on the outside, that maybe the world would be more wondrous. And to be able to use this really simple story with simple language to tell a three, four, five-year-old 
about some really complex things about race and body image and stereotyping is just divine. And I am useless. I just read it constantly. I'm always picking that book. My son is completely sick of it. That book sounds like it has lessons for adults as well, for all of us. Astrid, that is all we have time for in this, the final episode of season one of Anonymous Was a Woman. Look, the final episode of the first season is usually the best in any series. So guys, hold on to your hats. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed hanging out with us. I know I have enjoyed every second spent in Astrid's excellent literary company. If you would like to learn more if you would like to read more, you can find us on the Penguin Books website. You can also find us on the Future Women website. And there's a list of recommendations. There's a whole lot of information from our shows about the books that we discuss. We really encourage you to get out there to support your local bookshops, which are now open again, or have things ordered if you need to online, go for that. But support the book industry. It's been a really tough time for them during isolation as well. And we would love for you to keep supporting us by recommending the podcast to your friends and family or jumping on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast to rate and review. And while you're there, that rating is five stars. Astrid, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jamila. <laughs>